Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper. Again, again, a day late and a dollar short. Oh, no, not a dollar short, but we are a day late. It's uh, Monday, June 6th. 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 There must be some something magical about 6th. Six, six. Only if it's three sixes, I think. Uh, really? We have to wait four yeah, years? Yeah, then it's satanic. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there's nothing satanic then. It's June 6th. Beautiful day. Beautiful day. Uh, and we've been having some uh, very nice days. Okay. Uh, Let's move on. Let's move on. That's, uh, okay. Well, uh, you want to start? Should we jump in? Go ahead. The Savannah Bananas. We talked about the Savannah Bananas before, and by coincidence, Granger brought up the Savannah Bananas to me. The minor league team, which places a premium on entertainment and does some pretty creative things, well, I thought were relatively creative, until I learned the, the latest, but um, well, the article about the Savannah. My total coincidence. The, the Times has another article on them this week, and yes, it's all about. It was by the dance reviewer, the Times yes, the dance, dance reviewer. critic. Yeah, in the arts and leisure section, she says this is Margaret uh, Fuhrer. How does a dance writer from the Northeast end up fixated on a collegiate summer league baseball team from Savannah, Georgia? Uh, having read the article, I still don't know. But frankly, uh, she does writing about dance. What is she saying? She's saying that the Savannah Banana Entertainment, and again, again, their mission is to make baseball more interesting and entertaining for the average person, uh, has now branched out into dance. So every place you turn during a game, someone's likely to break out in dance. And what do I mean by that? I mean the first base coach. I mean the umpire. I mean, there's a lot of dance going on, according to well, all Ms. kinds Pure. of dance. Yeah, the, uh, uh, the, the first thing she games. saw was the uh, what was it? The Waltz of the Flowers by the first bass coach. Oh, yeah. So it's ballet. I right? read past that. And yes. then uh, yeah. there was also an umpire right. who, and you know, with the uh, third strike, mm-hmm. did a little bit from Bye Bye Bye. Oh, really? Yeah. By okay. NSYNC. Well, you and you uh, honed in on this better than I did. Yeah. I just, my eyes ran over it because to me, it, it just, it's the issue, which is not a small issue, which is uh, how do we feel about making baseball more entertaining? I mean, that's the real question for the Savannah Bananas. So how do you feel about it? Well, should we go through what all the entertainment is they have? Sure. You, you're on to that. You, you tell what us. is it? The Savannah Nanas? Or oh, Savannah the, Nanas. We're the over 65-year-old uh, dance team. The Savannah dance Nanas. Team. They're the dance And they're team. also putting together a kids' dance team. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they have all kinds of things going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... They have hip-hop dancing going on. They have all right. kinds of things, yes. The grounds crew does stuff. Yes. The, you know, the players do things. Uh, there's They have... Isn't there a pitcher or something who has a nickname Stilts? Uh, yeah. I and, mean, uh, I mean, they have a picture there of him pitching yeah, on, on stilts. the Stilts. Yes, I don't think he does much pitching there, but they do have a photograph. So they have that. all these crazy things well, they do. look, they have... Just a, it sounds too crazy to believe, but they have two teams. They have sort of collegiate team players who play towels and they have a professional team who's in an independent league team and there's some they break the rules more uh for the collegiate team i think it's a collegiate summer league team so they kind of pick their spots to some degree but they are very much to the guy who owns the team uh uh whose name i'm going to come up with in just a minute well, he's a young guy. He's thirty-eight. He is thirty-eight. But he bought he bought the team in his twenties or something. Yeah, and he said that uh, his mission 
is to make uh, baseball entertaining, um, which is not exactly where Major League Baseball's coming from. Um, so, uh, well, but here's the headline. Yes, I'm listening. They sell out every game. They They're sold sell. out for the season. Yes, they you do. go through the comments. Uh, online for the New York Times article and and people all these people are saying we're we're coming to the area but we tried to get tickets we can't that's too bad uh you know it's uh you have all these baseball teams that can't sell any tickets yeah but these guys are selling well, tickets well let me play first of all the guy's name is Jesse Cole he is 38 years old that's the owner um uh the the numbers are this they sell out, but the stadium only has 4,000 seats. So It has 5,000 seats. It says 4,000. It's got it right in front of me. Uh, and uh, selling out a 4,000-seat stadium is not the same thing as selling out a 40,000-seat stadium. So they're comparing it to um, Oakland, which uh, sometimes attracts fewer than 3,000. Right? That's the most unsuccessful franchise in Major League Baseball. They're basically purposely putting that team under so they have a license to move. So that's an odd comparison. But... They're succeeding as a, in a very small business. Okay, you can't say this means that they would succeed if they open if the St. Louis Cardinals were run this way. It doesn't tell you that at all. No, but how do you really feel about it? Because there are a fair amount of comments right. from seemingly cranky people, yeah, older people like saying, me. like me, yeah, who's saying the baseball is what's important, right? Okay, you know, you don't need all this nonsense. The baseball itself is fascinating. Yes, and this only distracts. Right. From the fascinating aspect of baseball. All right. Well, okay, I'll, I'll answer that question. And I think what puts a fine point on it is they have a quote from Morgan Sword, whose family we know or we knew. Well, the kids off. went to school with... Right. Well, oh, yeah. Morgan went to Lawrenceville, I think. And uh, we went to school with uh, his uncle. Right. But uh, so Morgan's now the executive vice president of baseball operations at Major League Baseball. And here's his quote. He says, I think putting the fans first is something we in every league try to do, we at Major League Baseball. But we were obviously also putting on a competition of the very best athletes on the face of the earth. So we try where we can to balance entertainment and competition. So that's kind of an awful answer. I mean, uh, that's like saying the hell with the fans. We got important work to do. We're representing the best athletes in the world, which is highly questionable also. Uh, so that's a real stayed unsatisfactory Major League Baseball answer. Um, you know what I found interesting? What? What? That uh, the players um, on that team... Yeah. Well, first of all, they won their division. Yeah. Okay? I don't know about their And division. in general, they played better. Yeah. The, the, you know, let me tell With you, all the hoopla. Let me cut through that. That doesn't mean anything. Because uh, they're recruiting players as much for their entertainment value as their ball playing value. So the guys come in and they hit 150. And after they play a few games, they hit 200. And they say, see, they're getting better. They're but not they are good. getting better. But they're not good at the beginning and they're not good at the end. It's meaningless. But 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 you, you frame the debate correctly. The question is entertainment versus baseball. They have and, and look, they have a quote from Don Mattingly, the manager of the Miami Marlins, who said the sport, baseball, is sometimes unwatchable. Mattingly works for Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. He's, he's calling it unwatchable. Here, here's, here's what I think the deal is. As you know, even last night, we were having dinner with some friends, and I had to pull away, had to go watch or listen or monitor the Met game. And I think it was that riveting to me. You're, you're bringing that back up. <laughs> My point is, so what's wrong with me? That that would happen to me. It's not entertaining. I think, I think that would take a long time to cover. <laughs> but here, I don't think we have enough tape 
in the box here, for that. Here's the thing. What? Baseball is riveting if you have a stake in the outcome. If your home team is a team you follow and you're watching that game, it is riveting because you have an allegiance to it. But, but you have to want to follow the team. I understand. And otherwise, and I will tell you, last night at 11 o'clock, I was watching the 11th inning of a game between the Cardinals and the Reds or something, and the Cardinals and the Cubs. And I could barely stay awake because it's not my team. So that tells you a lot. Baseball is not entertaining. Don Mattingly is correct, but it has a tremendous pull on a fan base, which has an allegiance on a regional basis. And how do you, you know, forget, forget the notion about they got the best athletes in the earth. Who, who cares? But uh, that's, that's, what you're mon- that's what you're comparing. Those, that's the tension between those two. And that's the tension Major League has to, re- has to resolve. Major League Baseball has to resolve that because there aren't enough folks like me left under the age of 65. That's their problem. Uh, and so there are some things that are short of dancing in the first base coaching box that might work. They have a time limit on the games, which is two hours. That's a little, that might be harsh because the baseball games take three and a half hours in Major League Baseball. But they are going to do things to make the game faster. And the biggest change on the horizon is they're going to make pitchers pitch according to a pitch clock, which will limit the amount of time between pitches. And that, I think, will go in next year and that will change the game a lot. But isn't it, isn't it, the batters too, like stepping, stepping out. Stepping out. I'm sure they'll have limits on them too. That's what you got to do. You got to have it where the pitch, 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 pitch. If they do that, it will change things dramatically, I believe. Uh, but I don't think you're going to see dancing by the umpires. This is what I think. Um, okay, so yeah, that's an interesting debate. There was an article about uh, 54 below. In the Times, apropos of nothing. Still down to party. No, it's not apropos of nothing. The Tonys are coming up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they're going to get and they're going to give a, a an award, some kind of recognition yeah. to the cabaret venue fifty four below for their contributions. Well not contributions to, uh, because you know, they employ Broadway. People. They employ people. They're actors who are short of making uh, Broadway or between gigs are able to go to fifty four below. And show what they can do and make a little money and get the exposure. And uh, why they give Tony Awards or don't give Tony Awards is beyond my ken. But that's fine. We have Well, point you know is, why? Because they're trying to help this uh, place survive. Yeah, they're trying. They're and trying. the other places. I, I I would just say it's it's pretty much a, a, a PR piece. Uh, it's, a it's fluff called, piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. totally. So and uh, and Tony is... And the, Tony's uh, are trying to uh, help them out. Right. There's nothing substantive underneath it. But, but that said... As you say, it's a cabaret space uh, below um, Studio 54 on 8th Avenue, 54th Street. And we've gone a number of times. And it's been great. And it's been great. I made yeah, a list. I don't disparage them. It's I just... made a list based on memory of the people we've seen. You may be able to add to this list, okay? We've seen Laura Bonani. We may have seen her twice. Um, Marin Mazzi, Jason Daniele, Melissa Errico, Norbert Leo Butch. Sherry Renee Scott. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone else comes to your mind. Um, but uh, we probably saw Cheetah Rivera do a song at the uh, classic stage. Right. Uh, the thing, uh, classic stage fundraiser. Um, and it's, it's a very small, intimate venue in which to see Broadway-level performers. I, don't, I couldn't put a number. Maybe there are 50 people there 
maybe there are 60, I don't know. But you're like in a small restaurant and there, you know, at the microphone is Norbert Leo Butts, about 12 feet from you or 25 feet from you. And uh, it's really something. So they did mention other venues like this. Yes. What were those? Uh, the Green Room, or Green Room 42 or something like that, which is because it's on 42nd Street. Um, and, you know, there are a few others I can recover those, but they don't get the same level of talent as 54 below. They say Birdland is starting to do something like this. Um, Birdland, of course, is, is a little bit upscale and it's been around for a long time. Um, you know, I hadn't really focused on the other places so much. Well, you know, I mean, hopefully, uh, don't tell Mama. Uh, West Bank's uh, ca- West Bank Cafe's Laurie Beachman mm-hmm. uh, Theater. Uh, you know, so there's a little bit of this around. But but what's interesting too about Fifty Four Below and where they may be losing us? Club Coming. Oh yeah, there's Alan Alan Cummings Club. Right. Yeah, he has people, but his is a little bit. Outre, a little out there a little bit. But um, uh, 54 Below has gotten pretty pricey. More pricey than when we saw it, okay? So when we were we were going to 54 Below, you would pay about the same you would pay for a ticket to a Broadway show. And you were seeing this, and they were giving you dinner besides, okay? No, I thought we had to pay. We didn't have to pay for dinner? I don't think so. Or we paid very little for dinner. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, okay. so... so you know, you could say to yourself, I'm getting dinner in a show for less than it would cost me to go for dinner in a Broadway show when it's this intimate setting and whatever. Now, 54 Below has decided that, uh, for whatever reasons, they may have good reasons, that uh, the premium talent uh, belongs in a different price tier. You know, something called like the golden tier or whatever. You know, for people like Stokes Mitchell and now Lauren Benati and uh, Kelly O'Hara, it's $300 a ticket. Mm-hmm. which is about twice what we were paying before. And I, I actually don't see us going there for $3. I think that's insane. But uh, that's what they're trying to do now. Yeah. Uh, but they but, have all kinds can... of stuff. They have both known and unknown. Yeah. And they, yeah. you know, they put together nights of, you know, just uh, a nights. variety yeah. of people um, singing, maybe putting on uh, basically a particular musical. Right. Uh, et cetera. You know, just uh, singing yeah, the songs. But, that, but that's my point in a sense. I, what I would tell people is you don't have to go to the, the Golden Tier. You don't need to see Stokes Mitchell. There's okay? probably there fun are, stuff to see. You know, there are plenty of people who are, you know, I'll say just as talented or almost just as talented, but who are very talented, who you would really enjoy seeing. They're going to price it, you know, at half of what they price the Golden Tier. And the food's not bad. And they give you a drink for free or something. It's fun. It's yeah. fun. I would say Go. And we haven't tried the other places. The other places are going to be a little cheaper. Maybe the talent's a little more uneven. But uh, it, I, I, I mean, I it is hard time. to imagine how they survived during the pandemic. Although right. they said they got two, at least two grants that right. really well, helped they, out. Yes, they got, they got the grants. But, everybody uh, got. They got yeah. the PPP. But it, and it's a it's a funky place. It's all you know, red velvet right. and, uh, and, and very. Yeah, and sometimes you share a table with somebody else. But we, we have nice conversations with yeah. people who share a table. In a banquet, you yeah. may be next right. to somebody else. Right. And um, so, it, you know, it's social. It's it's a little bit of a speakeasy feel to right. it. Yeah. And uh, the performances are, the ones, all the ones we've seen were just Wonderful. incredible. Yeah, and highly memorable. And, and and the people that I remember talking to when we shared a banquet, mm-hmm. uh, at least one or two couples, had seen many more than we had seen. 
Right. They go regularly. Yeah. They were going like once a week. It turns out these Broadway performers are really talented. Yes. <laughs> oh, you can see it even clearer, more clearly in a in a small room. Yeah. And it has that much more of an impact right. in a small room. And and they and they're singing a, a greater variety of music than when you see them in a particular show. You know, when they're playing a particular character, well, they you, want to show that they yeah. can have a range. And Every time we've seen it, they put together. It's not like they just go get up and sing a few songs. They yeah. put together an act. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Which is something our friend Tom Wopat couldn't be bothered well, to do. Okay. Well, that's we saw that out here in the so Raz that, room. So the Raz room, which was made to look like Fifty Four Below. Right. Uh, right. No, they clearly put it. And, and you know, look, the most memorable one to me might have been the one with Laura Benani and her mother. And her mother being a voice teacher. And, that was and her duper. voice teacher. And that was a theme you could never put over in a bigger commercial setting. But they both sang. The woman with a very good voice, even though she wasn't young, obviously not as young as Laura Benani. Uh, but it was wonderful. It was a great evening. But but also a much smaller nugget. Yeah. Marin Mazzi. Yeah. And her husband, Jason, Jason. Danelli. Yeah, Danielle. Um, it, we, they just did a little thing in the middle of a... a Right, some uh, yeah, that, a fundraiser, yeah, that benefit, um, yeah. and uh, they were great. Yeah, they were just great. Yeah. So, and of course, she passed away. Yeah. Um, so that's fifty-four below. Yes, people should do that, or something like it's worth doing. Um, all right. So there was an article. Here's that was, something that's probably not worth well, doing. I don't know. This was such a screwy article that I can't believe that the writer Deborah Cameron really fell for it. Uh, it's called uh, Dream Home or Nightmare When Makeover Shows Fail. And what this Deborah Cameron did is she interviewed several people who are in disputes with the uh, production companies behind some of those shows like Flip or Flop or something like that or Property Brothers, whatever they're called, in which people engage in renovations and then they come in at the end of the renovations and they, they go, wow, it's unbelievable. Our house is so much better now. It's fantastic. Happy ending. Everyone's a genius who did the construction work. And uh, there you go. I guess you looking at your own house. Well, it turns out some of these aren't happily ever after. After the fact, the families who were the subject of the particular profile decided that the construction was not as good as it's supposed to be. And there were certainly things that they had gone wrong. And uh, they end up complaining and suing uh, not only the contractors, but the production companies. Right. And so why did you find this article interesting? Because, because the, all of that seems to me so patently obvious. Well, you're saying it's patently obvious because, you know, the construction is probably not so great and the shows are kind of phony. That's what you're saying, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it always, uh, even when they overrun, it's like four weeks instead of three weeks. <laughs> you know, four weeks instead of two weeks it's or something. Fantasy, right? Which, you know... When does that ever happen when you're renovating anything? It's usually much and, more. It's months and, later. And right? the prices, their budgets seem ridiculous. In a, you know, there's no way. You have to explain you know, ridiculous. It, oh, what? ridiculous how? In other words, you're saying the Ridiculously budget. low. Right. You know, the, there's no estimate I've ever gotten in those ranges. And so it's a, it's a complete fantasy okay. that they can do all these things. And besides, it, often it doesn't even seem like there's all that much... Uh, innovative or interesting construction going on. Right. Mainly, they're getting rid of the people's crap and getting them some new furniture and putting down a new floor. Yes. But and that's, painting it a new color. See, but, an uh, accent color. Look, I, all your points are valid points about the shows, but the article isn't really about that. 
The article is about the disputes that they're having. I'm just saying it's all a fantasy. Okay, it may so be it doesn't all... surprise me that whatever you know actual work they're doing is not that good. Okay, but what I'm telling you is, having read the article as a lawyer reads an article and looking at the disputes, is the dispute that the complaints are bogus. In other words, they're complaining. How do you know they're bogus? I can tell just by reading it. I oh, mean, really? Yeah. Do you know what they say? They have complaint A, complaint B, and complaint C. And the answer is well. Then you look in the contract. The contract says we're doing this. And the people keep saying, I didn't have time to read the contract. You delivered the contract at a time I was at work. How am I supposed to read the contract when I'm at work? They're writing about this. Like that's a legitimate So that's response. your that's your interest. Exactly. Just, exactly. As a legal document. You can't. Okay. You're, you're bound by a contract. Right. Look, let no. me just give you some example. Here, no, here. don't give me any. I, I'm, 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 one, I'm not interested. It's not on the contract. Let's listen to this. Here's one lawsuit. Uh, the family claims... Uh, the lawsuit claims the family's above-ground pool with a wraparound deck was replaced by an in-ground pool the family couldn't afford to heat. All right? Now, you have someone come in and say, we're going to build you an indoor, uh, you know, an in-ground pool and replace your other pool. You don't know that's what's going on? You know, you're taken aback. You're surprised. Later, say, oh, my God. No, here's the thing. They say, we will build you a pool for X dollars. And they do. All right. No one's saying. So they didn't necessarily talk about this is how much it costs to maintain this or that. But you've got to be an idiot not to think about that. All right. All right. All right. Moving on. This is not an interesting article unless you're delighted delighted in... The you angle know, of the whole thing is because it's the on... The irony of people not reading the contract. <laughs> so the thing that's going on here is because there's a production company involved, they're suing a production company that has nothing to do with it. They're contractors with the contractor, okay? But they get to sue someone else because there was a television company involved, and that's the article. That's all it is. All right? All I right. knew you'd be as disturbed as I was. All right, so mm. then there was an article. Uh, well, you have that article about... People who were uh, just a couple of examples in the military, of, primarily yeah, veterans who came back from Afghanistan, yeah, and uh, started businesses that right. were often inspired by uh, their experiences uh, um, in Afghanistan, in yeah. battle, right, in, in in situations. One of them that was interesting uh, was uh, a guy named Brandon Friedman, who had never had tea. Yeah, before right. he went to Afghanistan, right. all right, he thought he once tasted a little um, iced tea and thought it was the grossest thing he ever had. You know, tea is for British ladies with big hats, right. he said. And then uh, he began sipping tea in Iraq with Kurdish fighters, all right, wearing AK forty seven bandoliers, and uh, it completely turned him around. All right. It's not just a matter of drinking. It's a matter of stopping, slowing down, uh, a way to remove yourself from everyday life. Right. And so he has been, he's started this business selling tea, trying to search out the kind of tea he had in Iraq. And, um, you know, and, you know, and other products as well. It's, it's kind of interesting. Really turned him around. Then there was, um, a guy who came uh, involved with manufacturing flip-flops, kind of military sandals at a combat boot factory. 
All right, so this is in Kabul. And uh, this factory came about uh, partly because um, the uh, Afghanistan, the Afghani soldiers mm. couldn't function in combat boots. Right. They weren't used to wearing these closed-toed shoes. It took them too long to put the boots on. And uh, so they, um, you know, this factory was uh, um, adapted. Right the basic uh, design, into a sandal situation. Mm -hmm. And this guy said, well, these are pretty cool. And uh, after, um, you know, uh, well, the U.S. Ups, pulled out. Yeah, up, he's had ups and downs. but After the war, there were no plans for the factory. So, uh, you know, uh, Matthew Griffin stepped in to try to, you know, use it uh, himself. Yeah, so for a while he was making the sandals there, and then he moved it even to Colombia, but... Um, well, he started making flip-flops. Flip-flops. That's what I'm calling the sandals, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's another article about, uh, I thought it was interesting, the Spice Company. And actually, that that's the one that's probably the most successful. That they And they went out, these are three veterans, uh, and they basically were, you know, very much had in mind creating jobs and creating a business so that people, I think it's Afghanistan, uh, would yes. uh, prosper and draw a salary, women in particular, and they're importing spices. And it seems like they have a substantial business, but they did it with an eye toward creating economic opportunity and helping the Afghan people. So, well, they have trained, Rumi Spice has trained nearly 4,000 local women right. to work in its processing and fulfillment. Well, centers. See, see, here's what, here's what triggered something for me when I read this article. What these people seem to be on to, especially the Spice people, they all wanted to help the Afghan people, but they all seem to conclude, or operating on the conclusion, that the way to help people is by making economic progress. Not political progress, economic progress. As a matter of fact, at one point, I think it's in the Spice business, could be the others, they say they took no side in the Afghan-U.S. Uh, dispute and, and the major developments that occurred over the last year or 18 months. They weren't aligned with anybody. Right. They're just there economically. Right. But it's economic opportunity that turns people's lives around. It's commerce. And by creating this economic opportunity and continue to support it, but not in a charitable way, but making a profitable business where a profitable business didn't previously exist, they're really creating a role for people and creating a life for people. Right. Much more than military intervention does. Yeah. That's what this article told me. Yeah. That, that's why I thought it was so remarkable. Yeah. No, so. I agree with that. Yeah. And also, and uh, this is kind of a different yeah. um, perspective. Chris Vidot, mm -hmm. helicopter pilot, mm -hmm. uh, was kind of overwhelmed by the pollution mm -hmm. created by war. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, burning uh, the military's burn pits, giant yeah. garbage dumps ignited by jet fuel. Mm -hmm. And uh, he came back just with a, sort of uh, a frame of mind that we can't keep using all this plastic. Mm -hmm. And so he started a company, the Sheets Laundry Club. Right. And so he sells, the company sells laundry detergents that's been dehydrated into sheets. And you put the sheet and in the they're sold machine. in little uh, boxes yeah. and you throw a sheet or two in the laundry right, in the right. washing machine. And he machine. says he sends that, you know, to uh, to soldiers overseas. But but 
you know, as, as you know, an add-on to his business. But here's my question to you. Have you ever seen that product in the market? I mean, do they sell that at local supermarkets? It, uh, I haven't seen it on the market, but I looked it up online because I'd really like to try it. Yeah, and can you buy it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, and so you, you oh, can buy, buy it at a lot of different sources, I mean, including Amazon. I it seems Amazon. like it's a smart move. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I didn't look, I didn't do the math about the uh, relative cost. Yeah, but, I'm sure uh, it's, I don't know, know if it saves anybody. I mean, we rack up yeah. the... Uh, Laundry uh, Right, and we use the dehydrated one. We use the smaller uh, Tide thing. The right? high intensity, yeah, yeah. there's still a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah. All right, so you had an article about, uh, was it airport terminals? In or- is it airport? Yeah, it is an airport terminal. LaGuardia. Oh, okay. So you remember LaGuardia was supposed to be, uh, you know, a horrible, horrible airport. It's like arriving in a third world country. Who said that? Was it Biden? Uh, it was some. Uh, some it, it was somebody. Yeah. Somebody important. Yeah. And uh, so it's been going through these huge renovations, yeah. and um, it you know uh, it's going to be a hotbed of public art, mm-hmm. and I you know public art excites me. You know I like murals. You know I like big things that everybody can walk by. They don't have to go in some fancy building and pay admission. You know mm-hmm. it's it's out there for everybody's uh, enjoyment and life enhancement. So there's some fun stuff going on uh, at LaGuardia. Uh, In uh, the Delta uh, terminal, Terminal C, Mm -hmm. Delta has um, a $12 million art program happening with a lot of uh, interesting, huge uh, contemporary art that they've commissioned, that Delta's commissioned, uh, and is being installed. Uh, Mosaics... Glassworks, uh, sculptures, uh, really, you know, seemingly uh, fun and interesting uh, stuff. There's a, a nice uh, montage of like uh, employees, uh, Delta employees, that's been converted, being converted into a huge uh, mosaic. So that was interesting. But the article briefly mentions some of the uh, art that's going on. In, diff- in other parts mm-hmm. of LaGuardia, Terminal B, four site-specific pieces uh, by contemporary artists were commissioned by the LaGuardia Gateway Partners in a $10 million investment that was unveiled in 2020. So that's interesting. A restored, a mural done in 1942 by James Brooks mm-hmm. in Terminal A, the um, old marine terminal, uh, has uh, been restored and that you know that's kind of nice that's kind of a you know make reminds you of the wpa projects mm-hmm. and uh, those kind of murals and then here's a cool thing a soaring 40 foot high richard lippold sculpture which hung at lincoln center for decades will become the cent uh, the centerpiece of an area called central Hall, the Central Hall. Mm-hmm. So this is just an interesting story because it was a huge um, kind of explosion of mm-hmm. metal pieces mm-hmm. called Orpheus and Apollo that hung in Avery Fisher Hall. That's now uh, Geffen Hall right. um, um, because he uh, gave some money, hundred million bucks. Right. Um, so anyway, the big renovation was going on because of that. That sculpture, 40 foot high, five ton sculpture, 
was removed in 2014. There was a flurry of articles saying, where has it gone? Mm-hmm. And then were people saying, gee, I come here all the time. I didn't even notice it was gone, but it's gone. And um, so that mm-hmm. uh, woke up Paul Goldberger. Uh-huh. Really? And, you know, he's an architecture he, critic. Well, he must be retired uh, he, he wrote for the, um, well, for the Times. Times, yeah. okay. He was on a couple of, he was, I think, working as a consultant to what was going on at LaGuardia, but also uh, involved with Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. And he put two and two together and helped negotiate. It, it was just taken down. They said they, they cannot accommodate it in the new Geffen Hall. Okay. okay. They have no use for so it. They they really... took it down. They wrapped it up. This is 2014 <laughs> and put it and put it in storage right. in New Jersey. Right. All right. The one Where thing right. somebody reported that the one thing the artist said is, you know, don't ever let them take this down because no one will be able to put it back up. And uh, anyway, um, it's sitting in storage. Goldberger knows about it. He says, "Hey, maybe this will work." Mm-hmm. Uh, over in LaGuardia, and indeed, it's going to be in LaGuardia. So you know, he, he kind of saved that uh, public work. Right. Yeah, I think uh, I think we know, or at least I knew, uh, Paul Goldberger's wife. But that's another story. Um, all right, well, that's interesting. So there was an article by David Brooks, column, an op-ed column called "The World's Greatest Life Hacks." And Ned Brooks, he's always got advice, doesn't he? he does, well, that's all he does. He's, he's full of advice, and uh, it's not always of the highest quality, and it's going to be revealed in this article. But he actually, he's quoting a guy I don't know, legendary tech journalist Kevin Kelly. And there are some, uh, some things that I thought were interesting, worthwhile, uh, striking. Okay, Here, here's a couple, okay? When you have 90% of a large project completed, fish, finishing up the final details will take another 90%. Well, I've heard that said different ways, but that's true, right? I just thought it'd be better if you have 90% of something done, just that's enough. Go. <laughs> Keep going. All right. Move well, on. This is point and counterpoint. Here's the next one. Anything you, you say before the word but does not count. I totally agree. Okay. Uh, you had checked this one. You like this one. Denying or deflecting a compliment is rude. Accept it with thanks. Yeah, I've had it with that. Even with myself. It just at this point seems well, stupid. Wait, wait a Somebody second. says, let, let me lay into the cake is delicious. And I say, well, it's not that yeah, delicious. Yeah, that's right. Blah, 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 blah. You I should just shut totally up and say, that. yes. That's exactly right. Yes. I should just shut up and say, thank you very much. Okay, good. I'm but you know, I, it just, you know, it seems so pushy. No, it's not. It's just to say, oh, yes. Thank we you so laugh. much. Me and the kids laugh when you do that, and you do it all the time. You, you always but put everybody down. does that. Everybody no. says it. Even when people say thank you, people will say, thank you. no, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, yeah, okay. let's just take right. it. I agree. Accept the compliment. Right. I'm holding you to that. Okay, here's one. Here's one that I think is actually very good. Getting cheated occasionally is a small price to pay for trusting the best of everyone, because when you trust the best in others, they will treat you the best. I think that's true. Yes, and it's not about letting yourself get cheated. It's about letting yourself uh, be open to trusting people. Yeah, right. that's exactly uh, right. And and that generally works out better than not trusting people. And and if it doesn't work out once in a while, you live with it. That's that's the point, I think. Shame on them. Okay, the thing that made you weird as a child could make you great as an adult. I think that's Well, I think we live by that. You're a little too strong for that. No, I, I think. Well, I think, but I think in general, the American public has come around to that idea. Okay. we're all kind of, you know, flying our fleet creek flags. Okay, so here's this one. That, yeah, well, it's come around a little too much, maybe. Here's one that you uh, 
you underscore Paul Reader. It's not an apology if it comes with an excuse. Yeah, get, get, yeah. Excuses are lame, lame, uh, lame, lame. Yeah. All right. So then, the, the next one meant more to me. Just because it's not your fault doesn't mean it's not your responsibility. I think that's true. Okay, that's that's too that's complex. Legal. It's that's legal. too philosophical it's legal. for me. It's, it's not legal. It's legal. All right. So then David Brooks runs out of the ones from uh, this fellow Kelly. Uh, so then he he says, "Here's the one I like." This tells you everything you need to know about David Brooks. Here's one I've embraced almost as, re- as a religious mantra. The idea that if you're not sure you can carry it all, take two trips. <laughs> now I'm saying to myself, how sad is this? David Brooks' words to live by, if you're not sure, take two trips. It's like somebody's nana would say that. And uh, it's not even good advice. <laughs> it's awful. I have to say that this morning I was cleaning out some stuff in the garage and I was about to bring things upstairs yeah. and I was taking way too much stuff and I was about to drop half of it and I said why am I doing this that's fine but it's still not it doesn't qualify as a mantra as, to live by a- <laughs> okay let me put it this way if you had a little less stuff you wouldn't take two trips uh, it, it, that's just ridiculous so here's one that might be apt in terms of the two of us marriage is a 50 year conversation marry someone you want to talk with for the rest of your life right we okay alright <laughs> All right, here's one that's a little better, okay? What are we going to do, Dan? You you only talk about the Mets. That's not only. I seem to have blown that one. That ship has sailed. Here's a good one. This one I think is absolutely true. What? If you meet a jerk once a month, you've met a jerk. If you meet a jerk every day, you're a jerk. Yeah, that's just just saying you have a bad perspective, right? Yes, that's true. You're looking at people the wrong way. And here's one I also don't agree with. This one from Warren Buffett. You can always tell someone to go to hell tomorrow. Well, sometimes the guy's not there. I mean, you got to tell someone to go to hell when you have the chance to tell them to go to hell. So I'm not going with that one. I think that's a little soft. It just means you, know, I you don't always means. have to tell people to go to hell. Well, that's that's, can, that's, that's, that's not true. You, what so, you do is you take your wife aside later and you say, I was really going to tell that guy to go to hell. That's uh, and then, then everybody feels exactly. good. If you had said one more word, <laughs> one more word, bam. All right, so we'll end with this. Gil Hodges has been celebrated lately because uh, the Dodgers, the, the great Los Angeles Dodgers, that's where in LA this weekend, retired his number. It's a very big thing to get your number retired in Los Angeles, apparently. It's bigger than the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which is meaningless as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but uh, there's a lot of talk about Gil Hodges, and uh, Gil Hodges is going to be put into the Cooperstown the real Baseball Hall of Fame, voted in by the Veterans Committee just recently, and he'll be installed in another month or so. There's a lot of Hodges talk, and there's a big connection between the Mets and the Dodgers because Hodges played for Brooklyn, was a big star in the 50s. Mm-hmm. He was a very admired and respected guy, supposedly supported Jackie Robinson a great deal. Mainstay of the team, not necessarily the most glamorous star, but a very solid, very good performer. Uh, team moved to L.A. He only had one year out there. He didn't do much. He was really a Brooklyn guy. Comes back, manages the Mets, takes the charge in 1967, and is the manager of the Miracle Mets in 1969. It was very much revered for that reason. Great New York baseball figure. So, anyway, I'm not going to go into Kill Hodges, um, but, there could be, but there are two things that do jump out at you in this article about him here. Jump out at me, I'm sorry. One is that... Uh, his wife, Joan, is still alive. Mm-hmm. She's 90-something years old. And she lives in the same house in Brooklyn 
where she lived with Gil when he came back and played for the Mets and managed the Mets. Oh. Which is kind of a big, kind of weird. Uh, but Bobby Valentine says it's spectacular. Mm-hmm. I mean, she just never, in her mind, she never left that. That was their life. Mm-hmm. And she's there 40, 50 years later or whatever. And uh, the final thing, and then we'll go, is uh, I'd heard the story before. Uh, that he was, he so much captured the fans in Brooklyn. He's a very religious man, apparently. That the famous story is, uh, uh, Hodges was in a slump once in the dead of summer, terrible batting slump, and it was super hot. And a priest at Brooklyn's St. Francis Roman Catholic Church, Father Herbert Redman, told his congregation, It's too hot for a homily. Keep the commandments and say a prayer for Gil Hodges. So there you go. Good advice. Good advice. Another life hack. So, yeah, say a prayer for Gil Hodges. Uh, that's all I got. All right. All right. So let's uh, go outside and relax with the mosquitoes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We'll see you Because next week. it's June in New Jersey. It no, is. we're not in New Jersey. We're in Pennsylvania. Yeah, oh, and wow. so it, is, it is June in New Jersey also. Uh, we'll see you next week. This is Dan Appyhoff. And Tamson Granger with Tamson and, and Dan. Dan read, read the, the paper. paper. There, you'll get it eventually. You'll get it. Bye.